the 45th President of the United States of America, Donald J. Trump. People are so frustrated in this country. Free speech under fire. They're bringing drugs. How desperate the left has become. How desperate Democrats have become. become. They're bringing crime. Dissolution of the country. They're rapists. Sever the ties that unite us as a nation. With the challenges and crises that we face right now, this is not the time to divide this country. Hi, I'm Denzel Mitchell. I'm Avery Shivers. And I'm Tahi Wiggins. And this is Main Street Speaks, a podcast that discusses rural news, politics, and history from the perspective of three college students from the northern neck of Virginia. Today, we will be discussing a meeting we recently attended, which was about interracial relations in the northern neck and across the country. But first, a quick recap of this week's news. According to Northern Neck News, there has been a 70% increase in coronavirus cases in Westmoreland County, Virginia. Since July 1st, the number of cases has risen from 93 to 183 due to a combination of businesses and parks reopening and people neglecting to follow social distancing protocols and refusing to wear masks. There have been over 76,000 cases of the coronavirus in Virginia and over 2,000 coronavirus-related deaths. Please continue to follow social distancing protocols, wear a mask, and wash your hands when necessary to help slow the spread of the virus. According to the Northern Egg News, Northumberland, Westmoreland, and Richmond counties could have 100% broadband internet coverage through the Middle Mile Initiative if they receive a $3.9 million grant from the state of Virginia and put $1.3 million into the project themselves. If the correct funding is received and the State Corporation Commission approves the project, Northern Egg Electric Cooperative, Dominion Energy, and All Points Broadband will work together to provide access to broadband internet in the three counties. If implemented, this project will result in a drastic improvement in the livelihoods of rural Americans in the counties. And according to the Fort Hunt Herald, the Fairfax Board of Supervisors, led by Supervisors Rodney Lusk and Walter Alcorn, recently voted to review a 911 dispatch system that would dispatch teams of unarmed medical, human services, and mental health workers to respond to nonviolent mental health and behavioral health incidents instead of police officers. This system would mirror a similar system that Eugene, Oregon has been using since 1989. The board's approval comes after a Mount Vernon police officer was charged with three counts of misdemeanor assault and battery for the violent takedown of an African-American man experiencing a mental health crisis on June 5th. If this program is implemented, Supervisors Lusk and Alcorn would be leading the state and the nation in improving the way police officers address mental health-related incidents. So before we begin our conversation today, we'd like to just give you a better idea of how this conversation and meeting came about. As a disclaimer, this meeting was organized within my parents' personal friend group outside of my residence from a social distance. Larger, more public meetings have halted due to concerns regarding the coronavirus. Later on in this episode, however, we will provide information regarding how listeners and local citizens can get involved in the future. Nevertheless, our meeting earlier this week was organized by my mother, Pastor Tyron Williams, and local organizer, Lori Morissette. My mother reached out to Pastor Williams in the wake of the execution of George Floyd, the 46-year-old black man killed earlier this summer by Minneapolis officer Derek Chauvin. 
Like many other Americans, the execution of George Floyd made my mother eager to get engaged with interracial relations within their local counties. In other words, this meeting was organized as a response to the Black Lives Matter movement and was seen as a moment for local citizens to sit down, learn, reflect, and engage in the Northern X political sphere. So Reverend Williams and Lori, Miss Lori Morset are the leaders of a group called Interracial Conversations. According to the Interracial Conversations website, in August of 2015, a group of over 40 clergy and community leaders met for a roundtable discussion in response to recent national events involving shootings and racial misunderstandings. The group gathered to talk about what is going well in our communities and what needs to be done to build a network of community contacts and to share resources. Now, Reverend Williams of Mount Olive Baptist Church and local community activist, Ms. Lori Morset, lead discussions with a group of around 70 people to promote dialogue about race and racism between people of diverse racial, cultural, and religious backgrounds. As Avery said, unfortunately due to the coronavirus, they have not been able to meet recently, but plan to do so again in September. For more information, visit their website, www.interracialconversationsnnk.com. And while we're basing this episode off this one meeting, really the themes we discussed here are relevant across the nation, particularly in rural communities. Reverend Williams isn't a native of the Northern Neck, and so he's able to see both sides, both being in the community and outside of it. And he said that there are things that happen here that, quote, just don't seem credible, unquote, to people who don't live here. So I was hoping that we could kind of discuss the main themes that you all brought away from this conversation and how you think they may be applicable to Virginia and rural communities across the country. Yeah, so I think one of the main things that I took away from this meeting was kind of recognizing the ways in which um, Laurie and uh, Pastor Williams are huge local advocates for interracial relations and interracial conversations in the area. And they're, they're making pretty significant moves to um, take action in the area as well. And one of the things that they had mentioned was this minority-owned business directive, which is essentially a culmination of all the minority-owned businesses in the area. So this is one, this is a, a, a kind of a, an idea that they have to educate local citizens on what businesses are owned by more minority folks so that they can support those businesses and help, you know, advocate and support the local black economy and the local minority economy in the area as well. And I found that extremely helpful. And they said they're going to be releasing that within the coming weeks as well and putting that all throughout, you know, businesses and restaurants in the area. Yeah. Um, my fear with this, though, is that they they mentioned this danger of um, this being perceived as uppity or I guess I guess that means too political in a way. Um, and I think it's going to be very interesting to see how the local community responds to that. Um, obviously, the three of us can like decide and, and understand that this is going to be an awesome initiative. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't, that's all I had. You guys have thoughts on that? Yeah. And the, the interesting thing about the uppity notion is, is, I mean, not only from white Americans, with, would that, not only mm -hmm. would that come from white yeah. Americans, but also could come from African Americans. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk about this later, but... Um, you know, other African Americans when they treat when they some other some African Americans when they see other African Americans try to, I guess, try hard or be bigger than their area, be bigger than their small town. So this is especially in rural areas. 
they perceive them as uppity, mm-hmm. perceive them as, oh, you think, you know, you think you're better than me mm-hmm. um, to some degree. Yeah. It's kind of a catch-22, right? Because one of the things that we talked about in this meeting was this idea of um, intergenerational wealth. And a mm-hmm. lot of the white-owned businesses in this area come from pretty significant intergenerational wealth. And oftentimes, they've inherited a business that's been in the community for many, many generations. And so has not only an established presence, but also a physically established space. Um, And in an area where you don't have a lot of media around local businesses, having community recognition and a physical storefront is really, really important to garnering Mm -hmm. business. And a lot of the businesses uh, that we've experienced um, as minority-owned, particularly the ones that we we were discussing in the last episode, they all function virtually. You know, they have websites or they're on Facebook or they operate out of their houses and they don't have the kind of physical storefronts that a lot of these white-owned businesses have, um, surely through hard work and, you know, maintaining a, a good revenue stream and all that, but also um, from the kind of intergenerational intergenerational wealth that um, some minority families, lots of minority families don't have, particularly in this area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's some there's some good businesses out there. I mean, just to mention a few, uh, I'm not going to remember the names exactly, but when we were talking about the businesses from last week, you know, there was a, a father and his daughter, she couldn't have been more than 10 years old. They made <laughs> all natural lemonade with no sugar. What? Uh, there's, a, there's a business in Lancaster, County, based on Lancaster County, called Button Up with Viv. Mm-hmm. Um, the woman actually went to school with my mother and other people in my family since my mother mm-hmm. had 11 brothers and sisters. <laughs> um, and she she makes, you know, these, and we spoke about this already, like necklaces and, and bracelets cool. and, and earrings, like out of buttons and um, a really good cake shop. There's a really good mm-hmm. catering yeah. services. Calio Cafe is owned by my cousin, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, La Cakes in Calio. La Cakes, yeah, the that's bakery. the cake. Yeah, yeah, La Cakes, yeah. Um, yeah, these. I mean, and this is all. This is a great thing about it because you know, if it's this is, it's not like we have a big booming downtown area here. <laughs> like, so it's hard to it's hard to hear about businesses, especially if they don't have storefronts. Mm-hmm. So definitely be on the lookout. We'll try and post uh, more information on the minority owned business directive um, as it comes up. But I think, like you, we like we just mentioned, it, it offers some pretty interesting themes throughout throughout the conversation yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. and if yeah. you ever visit Northern Neck. You know, even if you even if you're not from Northern Neck, you know, come visit these businesses um, in a safe, safe, safer time, though. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And you know, speaking of of people that come here, yeah. One of the <laughs> other really interesting themes um, that I found in this conversation was uh, Reverend Williams mentioned that specifically come here's uh, are more willing to talk about racial racial issues than are local people. And I just found this absolutely fascinating because A, it's, you know, it's relevant to the community here, um, but B, oftentimes come here's are shunned or sort of uh, insulted by locals. <laughs> and so if you, if you have people that already aren't really in the local community's favor, and then you add this idea that they also aren't super interested or that they are super interested in talking about race, um, it kind of, it, it creates this idea that the local community just like absolutely does not want to talk about issues mm-hmm. of race, despite the fact that they're really, uh, that they're really, really relevant here. So what did exactly. you guys think of that? Yeah, I thought the same thing. I was like, it's, I mean, my parents aren't from here. They are considered come here. So I guess I'm 
first generation come here. <laughs> but I, I think naturalized within, yeah, I mean, yeah, a naturalized citizen within the northern neck. But I think what I, I've always felt that there's this elephant in the room here in the counties of race relations. Um, and it's something that, like Reverend William had mentioned, is that it's, it's not easy to get people to sit down and discuss these issues. And he's had issues yeah. with the black community, he's had issues with the white community, he's had issues with impoverished folks in the community engaging in these topics. And I think it's really, really... Uh, discomforting for a lot of folks to discuss it, especially for people who have been here throughout generations, mm -hmm. because for a lot of white folks who have been here for generations, who have had the name passed down in this area and have gotten wealth from that yeah, name as yeah. well, they it's hard to admit for anyone that you know their granddaddy was a racist or their uh, their family members were complicit in this or that. And even more so, race relations are already a difficult topic in today's age. Yeah. Um, and being from what is typically a really red county mm -hmm. um, and conservatives don't tend to speak as much about race as um, Democrats do. I think you have this strange combination of factors that really, um, that really doesn't encourage, discourages uh, race relations in the interracial conversations as well. Yeah, and even it's just even beyond politics, like you were mentioning, it's just that you know we're like we were talking about with the Black Business Directive Directory, um, people don't even want to be seen to at these meetings yeah. mm -hmm. because they don't want to be perceived by their friends or family members who don't think in a similar way, who don't want to step out and have these conversations. They don't want to be perceived in a negative exactly. way. And that's African Americans and white Americans. In fact, one of the, they have a bigger problem getting African Americans to come. The vote. Yeah. Is and and yeah, the vote. The vote yeah. Thing yeah. Well. And I was, just, I was just talking about for the meetings, but yeah. voting as well for that, for, for that, that same reason, reason because yeah. they, they feel that, um, if their employer sees them go vote, they assume that they're voting Democrat. They're in, they assume they're voting yeah. a certain way. And, um, you know, they assume that they're messing with the power structure because, like you said, this is a very conservative Republican area. Yeah. So yeah. I hope that in the future, like the meeting I went to, for example, I was one of the few African-Americans there. I mm -hmm. went to one of the interracial meetings. Um, so... You know, there's also a lot of other things that go into that. Like if you're a Caucasian, more likely you have the time on your hands because mm -hmm. of the job you have and, and things of that nature. But you're right. There's also that fear factor. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I think that's that was something that really made me recognize. Like, I've, I've always understood and assumed the, the, the deeper history of the area. But that was something that really kind of made it very clear to me when they said the hardest thing um, that they've had to encounter for encouraging people to go vote was this obstacle and this fear that they would be fired from their job and yeah. their employer would fire them if you know they were seen at the voting polls, which is unreal because you consider that in the history of this this area and the fear that is instilled within folks and families. It's yeah, it's yeah. it's pretty upsetting. Yeah. And just in case you didn't hear that, I want to make this very explicit. People did not feel comfortable going to exercise their civic duty for fear of being fired. This is the kind of thing that Reverend Williams described as not credible from people who aren't from this area or who aren't familiar with the issues. And I mean, I've lived here for 11, 12 years and I still was shocked to hear that. It didn't, mm -hmm. didn't seem credible. So, you know, someone who's been in this area for a while finding that unreal, I can't imagine how that sounds to, you know, someone who has never been here or doesn't know the politics of the community. Yeah. yeah. And it's something we heard about, I've been hearing about for a while, just from working with Francis Edwards on his delegate campaigns, both of them. It was something that came up in mm -hmm. conversations we had with people. And, 
you know, if you look, another thing we should probably mention is that the businesses these people are working for, the businesses that these people are working for are white owned businesses um, that are part of the power structure here because they come from generational wealth. Sure. Um, you know, people with very prominent last names in the areas. I'm not going to name any specific businesses <laughs> because I don't, I don't know exactly, but um, I can just say that from people in my family have worked for these businesses. And my grandmother didn't vote until she was like 40. Or something mm, like that, wow. but I mean, you even got to consider the fact she didn't get the right of, right to vote until she yeah, was exactly. like way past eighteen. Right. So it was something very new to her. Um, mm. But yeah, I think that's really interesting too because uh, we spoke a tad bit about the influence of history versus the influence of like present uh, emboldening of racist actions, whether it be the current administration, federal government, or state government, whatever. Um, but there generally has been a, a rise in. Uh, support and emboldening of racist actions. So I think that was definitely really interesting for me to see. And a question I came off, came out of the meeting with is, you know, what, how has this area changed the past four years in regards mm -hmm. to uh, the the national divisions we're currently facing, especially in regards to race? Because mm -hmm. um, I know that there have been rising issues in regards to undocumented folks in the Latinx community as well, yeah. um, along with, you know, the black community. I've seen... More activism and people speaking out more because you mm. look at when this interracial conversation started it was 2015. Yes, yeah. So I haven't seen. Of course, people feel emboldened by Trump. Of course, I can't. I shouldn't speak too soon because what happened in Charlottesville could just as easily happen here mm. if people feel emboldened, uh, especially with the election coming up. But I've seen more people willing to step out. I think it's led by religious leaders, which is really good. You know, he, he did mention that it's hard to get other religious leaders, black mm -hmm. and white, to step out. But I think him and also young people. So, I mean, yeah. not, not hopefully, to... Yeah. Hopefully young people. It's a double-sided <laughs> so, double, double sword, I guess. Yeah. So there are two yeah. answers of it. Yeah. Um, I think to that point even, the, what do you guys think about this, the presence of religion and, and these conversations? Yeah, this was something I found really, really interesting. And um, I'm not a religious person, so for me it was a little bit... I think just a bit more difficult to kind of uh, wrap my head around because it's not something that I have a lot of familiarity with, but um, one of the things Mrs. Morissette said was when you are looking for God in the in the faces of other people, you, you don't see color. Um, I don't know. I don't know exactly how I felt about that. What do you guys think? Well, <laughs> I, I am more religious and, uh, you know, you know, I self-identify as a Christian, and just uh, is it, church itself is interesting, and the church because the foundation of Christianity for you know for you to interact as a human is through your church. In this area, one of the most segregated, you know, mm -hmm. like Dr. King yeah. said, churches are one of the most segregated places. Mm -hmm. At UVA, it's a little different. It is especially when you look at these newer non-denominational churches; mm -hmm. they're very diverse. And, um, you know, I'm not saying those people don't see color. I'm just saying that it gives you a chance to interact with people mm -hmm. of other races. And can, I, can I ask you actually about that? Yeah. Why do you think it is that, like, the, uh, the religious spaces at UVA in kind of a more, like, cosmopolitan-minded area are more integrated than the ones around here? I may have just answered yeah. my own question by I, asking that, but... <laughs> no, I think <laughs> it's just a matter thoughts. of fact of, and I was going to mention this, granted, some of those people probably interact with people of other races already mm -hmm. because they're from, like, the Northern Virginia area. Mm -hmm. or, they, or they're from parts of Charlottesville where they can interact. Now, I just also want to mention that interacting with other races is much different than standing up for them. Mm, and it's much different yeah, really than being anti-racist and a addressing racism. Yeah. So, 
I can't speak for the Christian community as a whole. Those are just my observations from what I've experienced being a Christian. I can just say that I see more white churches around here after the death of George Floyd stepping up. Mm. And some of the marches I've been to, there were white religious leaders there. Um, But again, I also want to mention stepping up, you know, when it seems politically popular is much different Mm -hmm. from actually Mm -hmm. making real changes. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's it's funny, well, not funny, it's interesting because one of the things that they like I said, have problems with was getting African-Americans to come to their interracial meetings. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they, they also have problems, I guess, getting Caucasian white American pastors to get their congregants to come yeah. to, to their interracial meetings. Um, so I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting. I'll just, I'll just lay out a whole bunch of observations, but it doesn't really answer your <laughs> yeah. question. But um, those are the things I see. I think something yeah. we can definitely like agree upon is that the religious community in this area, whatever church you're part of, is very, very uh, grounded within the community and has an incredible influence on the community mm-hmm. and how community activists organize and how people have conversations and how you get a group of people together. It's it's very interesting, and it was kind of enlightening for me to see how how much... Uh, these conversations integrate with religion, especially mm-hmm. hearing, you know, Pastor Williams speak about it, yeah. um, coming from a religious perspective and seeing God in the face of, or yeah, God in the face of others. every person you yeah. meet and others. Yeah. So, yeah. What about, um, what about the, the racial gap in education and also the conversations, attention we paid to uh, education system in America or in our county? Yeah, this was something that also very much struck me because I think in um, in this area, you know, there's like one high school in one county and it has, you know, 100, 150 kids uh, per class. And so by just by nature of like logic, it's going to it's going to generally reflect the demographics of the youth in the community, um, which means that you can see a lot of the. Uh, interpersonal and social phenomena playing out in the school environment Mm -hmm. and I think that's why it was such a large part of our conversation just because the schools are a pretty interesting proxy for the the community as a whole Um, and so do you just want to talk about kind of some of the phenomena that that people have observed that we we discussed at that meeting? Oh man I could go all day. (laughs) I I grew up as an African-American kid going through school and uh and the teachers, you know, they, they do treat you a different way. And I'll just give an example. You know, I was uh, suspended in middle school because I was tardy three times going <laughs> get into class. Yeah. And, you know, I knew people. I'm not saying I should have been on time. I'm not saying I should not have been on time. <laughs> That's even something I'm still working on now. <laughs> but there's, there's two parts. There's two things I want to address in this. You know, I, I was able to go home and have parents who encouraged me to continue to do my work. And I had two parents in my household, so I had a stable living. Now, imagine an African-American kid who's not like, who doesn't have the advantages that I had, or any kid for that matter. Is it really going to improve their situation if you take them out of school for an entire day mm. because they didn't do, they didn't show up to class on time? It doesn't, it doesn't really make any sense. And I think that I try to look at these these things. I have to look at a lot of these things from that perspective. Stacey Abrams put it perfectly. You know, when she was talking about why she writes bills, she said, I write bills for people from my community but didn't have my parents. 
And I have to mm. look at everything from that perspective because I am privileged to some degree due to the fact that I had two-parent household and, you know, I was middle sure. class. But I have to look at the things from the perspective of even though I didn't suffer as badly from it, other people who look just like me just because they look like me did. So that's one thing, um, you know. I was tardy, but people would cheat. I would, I mean, even in high school, I would see kids like walk out of class and then it was white kids. I would see them like show up late, leave school in the middle of the day. They would never get in trouble. And I think that people look at white privilege the wrong way. They, they see it as saying people are saying that white people don't work hard. I mean, I know white people work hard. I know white people struggle, you know, like, you know, like your guys' parents, I know your parents worked hard, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I don't, I'm not saying that what I'm saying is that. You know, looking at my situation, it was the color of the skin, color of my skin that decided mm-hmm. the outcome for me doing almost the exact same thing as exactly. a, a right. white person. So, and that that's what I see. I saw a lot of in the school system. I can go through a whole bunch of different examples, yeah. but um, and that was something I mentioned in the conversation yeah. we had. Um, yeah, and yeah. they discuss this a lot, um, and they discuss it in another case where. Uh, they've mentioned this incredible achievement gap between students within the education systems in the area and that black oh, yeah. students are underperforming um, and are more truant or more absent from classes than white students and that their parents aren't attending um, teacher conferences or teacher mm-hmm. meetings. <clears throat> Sorry. And they mentioned these as a lot of factors, but there's these systemic issues that, that are built into this. There's, yeah. you know, why are students late to class or why are students not able to come to school? Maybe it's the privilege of not having a two-parent household. Maybe it's the privilege of, or, or their lack of privilege of having transportation to go to school mm-hmm. or um, or their, their parents not having the time because they're working two right. jobs to go right. to, so they can't go to a teacher conference meeting or whatever. And I found that really interesting, but I also found really interesting was the school board's response to these issues and the school board's response to um, people within the school system. I forgot the man's name, um, but people, a man within the school system trying to fix this issue was actually... Ranson. Yeah, 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 Ranson was was trying to effectively institute change within the system. And a few months later, he was fired. Yeah. So that was something that we found super interesting is that there's almost a neglect within the school system to recognize the issues that they have and turn the blind eye. And the people who suffer are students, most often black students or students of color or just impoverished students in general. Yeah, low income students. This is, this yeah. is, it comes down to class and it comes down to race and those two things intersect as well. And it's, it's really upsetting to me that uh, that hearing Pastor Williams and hearing uh, Miss Morissette talk about this with with such disappointment because they see how the the school board has failed a lot of the children that go into school in this area and then you know we we ask a lot of questions about this area and and why business isn't doing well and this this and that and I think there's a lot that can be attributed to to the poor poor school system that we have yeah. and the lack of funding and that's a that's a local issue but it's also a state issue as well because well, we need national issue. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we need we need more money we need state funding yeah. Yeah, in our public do. schools right. as well because yeah. right. we're one of the worst public Lancaster is one of the worst public schools systems in the state of Virginia yeah and I'm glad you brought I'm sorry no you're good I'm yes. glad you brought up that point because you know like I know some some of the people on the school board and I know that um, you know, I'm not saying all of them but I, I know that you know a good amount of them do have good intentions mm-hmm. and it's yeah. the there's a limitation on resources but also like you mentioned earlier you know you only go to school even though it's a significant amount of your day you only go to school for seven hours you gotta go to a home Mm-hmm. And what in your home life, and not only that, but 
you know, you have all these years before you get into school. You know, you have mm-hmm. that five years of those five years of development that They're are so critical. Yeah. yeah, and so those are those are issues beyond the school system, but that's not letting them off the hook. Of course, mm-hmm. yeah. I think that, Definitely. like you said, the firing of Principal Ransom was a pretty big deal. A lot of people were very upset about it. Yeah, and we could do a whole episode on that. And I think we will be too. Like, I <laughs> think we will yeah. Be for sure. Yeah. As you can see, we just had a great conversation, but there's so much more work to be done uh, to address the systemic racism in our community and around the world. Uh, obviously, we could spend all day unpacking racism, but unfortunately, we come to the end of our episode. Um, so here are our final thoughts. During the final thoughts portion of this episode, we'd actually like to share a story with you done by NPR that took place in a rural area of Virginia, Accomack County, which is on the eastern shore. They reported on the health disparities faced by the Latinx community. Despite being only 10% of the Virginia population, they represent 30% of COVID cases. This is largely due to the fact that meatpacking plants dominate the economy of Accomack County, where a large portion of of the Virginia Latinx population lives. We'd highly recommend listening to the reporting. It tells stories from the perspectives of those who are living them and gives a deeper insight into the demographics and unique issues of this very diverse state. And first of all, thank you for everyone who has supported the podcast. Um, But we just want to mention again, to keep up our efforts, we need your help to grow our audience. And the best way you can do that is by subscribing to the podcast, sending in questions through our email, rating and comment, commenting on episodes, engaging with us on Twitter and Facebook, the links of which you can find in this episode's description, and just spreading the word about the work that we're doing. Uh, Both us and the community will be grateful for any way that you can show support for this podcast, Uh, because like Avery said last week, it's filling a informational void. Uh, So we're doing a lot of good work, not only for us, but for the community. So I'm Denzel Mitchell. I'm Tahi Wiggins. And I'm Avery Shivers, and we will see you next time.